You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 65 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchot, and this is the show for February 2019. It is a solo show this month. Um, Going back to a series I've been doing for a while where I basically pick a techie term in photography and talk about it. So very much the craft as opposed to the art of photography. In fact, I've decided that this sort of collection of episodes actually is worth putting a little bit more order on. So I'm working on collecting together a page where I'm going to put all of these jargon episodes as I'm calling them into a single page where they're going to be easier to find. I haven't quite figured out the best way to make WordPress do what I want it to do, but whenever I beat WordPress into submission, you will find all of these episodes in the series and a description of what techie terms they describe at letstalk.ie forward slash jargon. I've decided the URL. Now I just need to make it actually work. But anyway, keep an eye out there. Hopefully I'll get that licked into shape in the next few days. So, what is our jargon term for today? I have decided to do the first jargon episode of 2019 uh, to bite off quite a difficult one, actually. One that confuses an awful lot of people. We are going to talk today about white balance. So, what is white balance? Well, it's a setting that tells a digital camera about the colour of the ambient light. In other words, the colour of the light that's shining on whatever it is we're taking a photograph of. On the camera end of things, you will usually find the white balance defined by a collection of sensibly named settings like daylight and overcast or incandescent and fluorescent. So they're describing the kind of light that's hitting the thing we're taking a photograph of. So, that is white balance, as I described it. Uh, When we then take our image into post-processing, we generally won't see these named uh, descriptions. We'll instead see usually two sliders. One of them will be labelled something like colour temperature, and the other one will be labelled something like tint. So, the obvious question is, why do we need this weird setting that tells the camera about the colour of the light? Well, before we talk about the camera, let's talk about our biological built-in camera, our eyes and how they work, and also our brain. So when we see something, it's because light comes from some sort of light source, bounces off of the something, and then strikes our eye where we detect it using light-sensitive cells. Now, those light-sensitive cells, when they sense colour what they're actually sensing is the frequency or the frequencies of the light that hits the back of our eye after it's bounced off the thing we're looking at. So if we remember back to our school days, uh, we, we may have learned that white light contains equal amounts of all the visible frequencies. So all the visible colours, basically you take all the colours of light and you get white, if they're all in equal amounts. Um, so when white light bounces off an object, that object is going to absorb some colours, and reflect some other colours. So what we call the colour of the object is actually nothing more or less than the combination of the reflected colours that arrive back to our eye. 
So white light bounces off some grass. All the colours apart from the green are absorbed by the grass and the green is reflected by the grass. So it arrives in our eyes only the green. Hence, grass is green. Or, if you're in California, brown. But let's not go there. Uh, so, white light hits the thing. Some colours absorbed, some reflected. Whatever is reflected gives us the colour of the object. So... That's all good and well, but the real world isn't illuminated by pure white light. So, you know, in our first example, the actual frequencies that were hitting our eye were the frequencies for green light. We had white, everything but the green was taken out, so it actually hit our eye was actually green. And so it's all simple, the grass is green. But the real world isn't like that. The real world, the light hitting the grass isn't pure white, which means that the all frequencies aren't arriving to hit off the grass, which means that not all frequencies are available to be reflected back from the grass, which means that there's going to be a bit of a colour shift, because some things that would be reflected from white light are not going to be reflected from, you know, because it wasn't there, the light wasn't pure white. So that actually means that the frequency of the actual light that hits our eyes is not only a result of the colour of the object, it's actually a result of the combination of two things. The colour of the light that's illuminating the object and the colour of the object together will produce the actual frequencies that hit our eyeballs. But that's not how we experience the world. We don't experience our car as changing colour every day depending on whether it's morning or night. Our brains somehow adjust, they compensate. So our brain basically looks around and goes, well, I know grass is green, and I know that flower is sitting next to the grass, therefore I know that although the actual frequencies I measure are, say, a dark orange, I know that's actually a yellow daffodil. And that adjustment, that shifting of the measured light, sorry, the measured colour versus the experienced colour, is our brain doing a white balance adjustment. So... You can see this in action all the time, right? You take a white piece of paper and you go out at midday in the midday sun and it will look white. White light hitting white paper results in actual white light hitting our eyeballs. So far, everything is by the book. We take that identical piece of white paper outside a few hours later in the golden hour when the sun is low in the sky. And if we were to scientifically measure the frequencies, it wouldn't be white anymore. What we would measure would be yellow. But when we look at the paper, it still looks white to us. We would still say that is a white sheet of paper. We don't think the paper has changed colour. So that's the white balance in action. And if we want to take a photograph, in, so taking photographs in pure white light is easy, right? What the camera measures is the same as what the eye measures, is the frequency of light. Now the camera measures it as three measurements, which then it combines into one. It basically measures how much red, how much green, how much blue. But the end result is it gets one frequency measure for every pixel on the image and that gives you the colour of the light or the colour, yeah, so the colour of the light it measured at that pixel and then it puts it on your screen as a certain colour if every bit of digital photography was done in white light that is all that would be needed we would sense the colours, we would reproduce the colours basically sense them, store them, reproduce them nothing complicated there but the real world isn't only illuminated by white light. We don't wander around shining white lights and everything we want to photograph. The real world is illuminated by real world light. So that means we need to tell our camera how it should shift the measured colours 
to produce a photograph that looks the same as the world we experience. So in other words, actual measured frequency combined with the white balance gives you the value of each pixel in the image. Modern cameras are actually pretty smart. Um, So modern cameras have been trained to look at a field of light and make an educated guess as to what kind of scene it's looking at. And then based on the educated guess of what kind of scene it's looking at, make an educated guess of what kind of light is illuminating that scene. And that's, I mean, that sounds, wow, that's amazing. But when you think about it, it's not actually that, well, it's difficult, but it's not that difficult because in reality, the different types of light that would actually exist in the real world aren't all that varied. So, you know, sunlight is by far the most common. So that's an easy white balance to to, to learn about. And then cloudy weather in some parts of the world is maybe even more common than sunlight. Um, And then you have sunset. That's another common one. And then you're into the common types of artificial light. Camera flash, incandescent light bulbs, fluorescent light bulbs. And, well, I don't actually, I presume our modern fancy pants light bulbs are effectively fluorescent. Um, And yeah, camera flashes are often things like tungsten. But we have this small set of known common light sources. So, you know, your camera's making a guess, and that's all the white balance. But in reality, we're probably dialing in one of, you know, or if we, well, not probably. When we want to, we can assert control. If we look on the back of the camera and the images are looking terrible, well, we can adjust for that by putting in an explicit white balance, like I was talking about earlier. We might pick daylight or whatever. But when we come in to edit our images in post, we're not presented with that Englishy value. We're presented with a section, a little brick in our photo editing app, and they will have two sliders, not one slider. One of those sliders will be labelled something like colour temperature, which sounds weird, but we'll cover that in a minute. And the other one will be labelled something like colour cast, or more commonly actually colour tint. And sometimes these two sliders will have um, colour labels on them to give you a bit of a hint. And so the colour temperature slider will range from red to blue. And the if it has a value, which it usually will, right? Unless the app is only showing a slider. But if the app shows you an actual numeric value, they're going to be really big numbers on the, on the colour temperature axis. They're going to be, you know, thousands you know, with the middle point being around about 5,600. And they may or may not have a unit on them. And if they have a unit on them, it's probably going to be K for Kelvin. Or maybe C for Celsius. But generally speaking, it's only Kelvin. Um, And that genuinely is a measurement of temperature to describe a colour. As I say, put a pin in that. The other slider then will be your tint slider, most probably. And that will, if it's colour hint, if it's sort of labelled with colours, that will be labelled in a direction where it goes from green to magenta. And if you say, that seems a bit arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. Um, what is a bit arbitrary, actually, is the scale on the green to magenta on the tint axis. It's not in Kelvin. So it's not in anything like the same units as the colour temperature. It's a completely different set of units. Usually, basically, it goes from zero to one, and or plus one to minus one as well. Actually, is probably more common. I think about it, but basically, you're going to have a, like a fraction, a tint of 0.4 or whatever. But the numbers are actually really quite arbitrary on the tint axis, and they'll, they'll vary from app to app. But they're often a ratio of basically between no tint, you know, full green, 
or full magenta, usually being represented as, you know, full green, minus one maybe, or plus one, and full magenta, plus one or minus one, and everything else something in between, with zero being no tint. Um, and again, that all sounds a bit arbitrary, but it's not as arbitrary as you might think, because if you take a colour wheel, and you look at the colour temperature axis, it goes from red to blue, so you find red on the colour wheel, and the first thing you'll probably notice is that blue is directly opposite red on the colour wheel. If you draw around from blue to red, you go clean through the centre of the colour wheel. Okay. At the centre of the colour wheel, draw a line at 90 degrees to this red-blue line. And what do you get? Hey presto, green magenta. So in other words, the tint axis is at 90 degrees to the colour temperature axis. It's basically the... It's adjusting colour in the opposite way to the colour temperature. Now, in reality, it is my experience that the colour temperature slider you use a lot and the tint slider you use a little. Um, And that's probably because I'm a natural light photographer. I do almost everything in natural light. And natural light here on planet Earth comes from this thing called the sun. And this thing called the sun is an approximation of something physicists call a black body. In other words, it's a light source that behaves itself on that colour temperature axis. And that's sort of why that's the one you tend to work with. So this whole colour temperature thing is weird, right? So I've mentioned black bodies. Let's let's talk about that. This is not some sort of um, discussion of race politics. This is a whole different kind of black body. Um, the, the phrase in physics is something called black body radiation. So in physics, they have this concept, a, a platonic form that is an object that perfectly represents things that emit light by being warm. So a fire emits light by being warm. The sun emits light by being warm. A glowing piece of metal emits light by being warm. So something which emits light by radiation like that is an approximation of this ideal emitter called a black body. So a black body, you heat it up and it begins to emit light. And so if you draw a graph of how much light is emitted against what frequency the light's emitted at. So you have the intensity on the y-axis, the up and down axis, and you have the frequency of the colour on the x-axis, the crossways axis. And what you'll find is that, so you, you take your black body and it is at a temperature, and you measure, and you draw your graph, and you'll find that the graph has a giant big mountain in the middle of it. So it's sort of, it's not symmetrical, it's not your typical... Um, It's not your typical sort of shape you see in a lot of graphs where you have a peak with two equal fall-offs either side. Um, It's a a lopsided mountain, um, sort of not quite El Capitan, where you have like a straight face on one side and a gentle slope on the other, but it's it's pretty asymmetrical all the same. But regardless of the shape of the mountain, the mountain will have a peak, and that peak will be at a specific frequency. You then take that exact same black body and you heat it up a little bit, and you measure again and you heat it up a little bit more, and you measure again, and you do it again, what you will find is that the peak of the mountain moves with temperature. So the shape of the mountain stays pretty constant, but the more you heat it, the more the frequency that that peak occurs at moves across your graph. And what that means in the real world is that you start off emitting light that the human eye can't see, infrared and stuff like that, and then you get to red, and then you get sort of through your reds and eventually you make it to blue. So blue hot is hotter than red hot. And this we know from real world life because 
a stick of metal sitting in a fire is an approximate black body. And as its temperature changes, its colour changes, which is why blacksmiths will talk about, you know, if you need to temper a piece of metal, you need to be at a certain shade of cherry red, and that's exactly the right temperature to quench it in oil. Or was that to quench it in water? I really wish I'd paid more attention to metalwork class. Anyway, a blacksmith will work on metal. What he really cares about is the temperature of the metal. But he will describe it to an apprentice as the colour. And he will learn, you know, he'll learn to know that it's the right time to do whatever he needs doing by the colour. And that's because of black body radiation. And so there is, if the light source is caused by heat, if it's thermal radiation making the light, then it will behave approximately like a black body. So you actually really can say a lot about a source of light by talking about its temperature. Or rather, the temperature a black body would be at if it were to be emitting light that looks like this light. Now, in the real world, so an incandescent light bulb radiates, is a black body-ish, approximately. Uh, But so is the sun. And so that's why we will say that a neutral white balance in daylight is 5,600 Kelvin. That is the temperature of the surface of the sun. That's not an accident. That is because of black body radiation. The sun is an approximate black body whose light-emitting surface is at approximately 5,600 degrees Kelvin. So daylight white balance has a colour temperature of 5,600 Kelvin and no tint. So in other words, it's on that red-blue axis at 5,600. And then your colour tint tends to come into play more for artificial sources of light, stuff like flashes and uh, fluorescent bulbs and other fancy pants modern bulbs. They don't make heat. That's why they're so efficient. But they don't make heat, so they're not black bodies. They're emitting light by entirely different physics. And so it probably shouldn't come as a surprise that they, they, they have tints, whereas your stuff that comes from the sun generally won't have a tint. So natural light photographer... You spend most of your time sliding the colour temperature slider up and down and almost none of your time touching the tint slider. So, you know, in the real world, like I say, neutral average is 5,600 Kelvin if you're outside in daylight. Um, And the good thing is that artificial light sources tend to have very well-known temperatures and tints. So that's why the presets tend to work so well in cameras and also why auto detection tends to work so well. Now, while we're talking about white balance, we have to talk about the whole RAW versus JPEG dilemma. So, if we remember again, our cameras are sensing the actual frequency of light that strikes the pixels. The colour of that pixel in the final image is not the original colour that struck the sensor, it's that original colour combined with the white balance to give the final answer. So input times white balance, it's not times, it's way more complicated maths, but anyway. Input combined with white balance gives output. A raw image stores inside itself the actual raw red, green and blue values that the sensor detected. And it stores the white balance setting the camera was dialed to at the moment in time the image was taken. So you take your image and when you view it, your computer is actually having to redo that maths to render the image. So it says, okay, so here's the raw values. Here's the white balance setting. Ta-da, here are your pixels. Now that involves storing a lot more information than is strictly speaking necessary. 
So JPEGs are designed to be small and portable. So when you shoot in JPEG, your camera does the maths to convert the actual measured values into the representation. And then it only stores the final representation. The actual original red, green and blue values are discarded. So we say that the white balance is baked in. So what that means is when you come to do your post-processing, if you shot in RAW and you move those sliders around, those sliders are not guessing. The actual RGB information is in that file, so those sliders are just reapplying the same math to the actual original full data set. So it's no different to going back in time and changing the white balance setting in the camera. So you actually genuinely can change your mind on the white balance. It's okay to get it wrong in the field because when you adjust it in post, if you shot raw, you are making a change which loses you zero quality. It is no different to having spent the time to adjust the white balance in the field. It is lossless. But if you shot in JPEG, when you move those sliders around, the actual data needed to calculate the new values for the pixels, is gone. It was discarded. So the only thing your photo editing app can do is make an educated guess. It can extrapolate. It can apply algorithms to make guesses. But that's all they are. They're educated guesses. So what that means is, if you shot in JPEG and you start to swing around with those white balance sliders, you are not going to get as good a results, nor near as good results if you had to make big adjustments, as you would get if you shoot RAW. So if you're shooting on a day with variable cloud cover where the, the, the white balance is constantly, continuously shifting under your nose, that's when it really pays to shoot raw. And of course you pay for it in terms of file size and all sorts of other things, but nonetheless, raw really, really comes into its own when it comes to white balance adjustments. That's completely where, where raw absolutely rules the roost. Now, another thing I definitely think we need to talk about when it comes to white balance is grey cards. So, it, if, if we want to be sure that we get a natural, correct, in inverted commas, a, no, not inverted commas, an actually scientifically correct representation of the light that struck our camera, then we need to know the colour of the light that was in our scene. So... The only way to really know that is to put something in the scene whose colour you know. In fact, ideally speaking, you want to put something in the scene that you know has no colour. That's That just makes life so much easier. Because then you can do a very simple piece of math. So we know that measured colour is source colour combined with object colour gives you measured colour. That's what we've been saying all along, right? The light that from the light source hits the thing, combines with the thing to give you the reflected light that you detect in your camera. So if the thing is known to have no color, to be neutral, then whatever color you measure at the end of the result is the color of the, of the light in the first place. So if you have something which you know to have no color, you put it in the scene, then whatever measured color you get was the color of the original light. And therefore gives you, with a small amount of, sim- you know, I won't say simple math, but a small amount of knowable you know, math we humans entirely understand, gives you the white balance of the original light. So that is why a grey card is a thing that you can buy in a photography shop. Now, you could arrange to have something neutral in every scene. Eh, 
not great, right? You'd be a bit weird. So in reality, what you'll do is you'll you'll have your grey card with you. You'll pop it something. You pop it under the same light. So if if it's a sunny day, you can put that white card anywhere where the sun is, include it in a picture. And then when it comes to post-processing, you take the eyedropper white balance tool and you drop it onto the grey card and that will measure. So basically, the eyedropper tool in your photo editing app, what that actually is asking you to do is say, please put me over something with no colour and then I will use that to infer the colour of the light, get my white balance settings and hey presto, the image will be properly you know, properly coloured. So if you have an actual grey card and you drop the dropper in Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever it is you're using onto that, grey card, then your app genuinely has the scientifically correct white balance setting. And then you stamp and paste that setting onto the real pictures you took. And hey presto, you have scientifically perfect white balance. And so I never go anywhere without my grey card. And that's the first thing I'll do. So if I'm particularly, if I'm shooting indoors or something where the light could be any sort of colour, I'll I'll have my grey card, I'll take a picture of the grey card, I'll put it away, I'll do my shoot and then the first thing I'll do when I come to edit in Lightroom is I'll go to that first picture with the grey card in it I'll use the eyedropper tool to read that white balance adjustment then I'll copy that one adjustment select all the images in the in, in the shoot and I'll paste that adjustment onto it and hey press so now I don't have to worry about white balance that's it one edit start of the you know one change at the start of the process and I'm done with white balance from a scientific point of view I'm done with white balance now, if I'm outside on a day where the light is constantly changing, I'll end up taking multiple grey card shots. Every time the light changes, you take a new shot of your grey card, and when it comes into post, basically apply the grey card to every shot that's not a shot of a grey card, and then apply that grey card to every shot that's not a shot of a grey card. Lather, rinse, repeat, right? Simple algorithm. So that's why grey cards are so valuable, and I think I bought mine for like 20 euro or something. It's credit card size, the one I have. You can get giant big ones, but it's just really good to just know, okay, that is the scientifically correct white balance. Now, so far, this entire episode has been science, 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 science. Well, the art and craft of photography get to have their say now for this little final segment here. So... I do not consider my colour adjustments to be finished when I have used my grey card to get the scientifically correct white balance for my photos. Yes, that is now scientifically correct. But I am not a scientist making a scientific measurement. I'm a photographer producing a piece of art. What matters to me is the feel of the photo when I look at it, not whether or not it's scientifically accurate. Right? That's not the point here. So... As an artist, we can choose to nudge the white balance from the scientifically correct value. And I use the word nudge advisedly because if you make wild adjustments, you end up with really quite unnatural images. But if you make subtle adjustments, you can have very pleasing effects. So, you, generally speaking, for artistic effects, the only slider I touch. So, to correct, I will use my grey card, and if you look at the actual adjustment the grey card does, you'll see there's often a little bit of tint mixed in. So, you know, a fairly substantial change usually on the colour temperature axis and a small shift on the tint axis. But usually the tint axis is not that big of a shift. But when it comes to being artistic, I don't touch the tint axis. I'm sure there's valid reasons to, and I'm sure other people do, but personally I don't, because what I'm interested in is, well, actually, the temperature that the shot feels. And you'll hear this speak, this 
temperature metaphor sneak into photographer lingo. If you take that color temperature slider and you move it towards the red end of the spectrum, you are representing warmer feeling tones. Even though actually, scientifically speaking, it's colder colors. Which is a bit weird, but okay. Artistically now, so leave the sign slider. Artistically, if you take that color temperature slider and slide it towards the red end of the spectrum, you will get what we call a warmer color. And it will feel, the image will feel gentler, friendlier, softer. All of those kind of words are in warmer images. Think sunrise and sunset, the golden hour, that sort of relaxed, laid-back feeling. That's what you get when you use, when you nudge the white balance to a value that you know is more red than the scientifically accurate measured value. And so if you want that feeling in your photograph, then you nudge that color temperature slider that away. And you can do the inverse. You can nudge the color temperature slider the other way towards the blue. And then you have an image that feels colder. So if you're trying to capture a frosty day and you want it to feel like a biting frosty day, not like a warm Christmas card, right? You might have a snowy image that you nudge towards the red to give you a warm, you know, Christmassy, you know, fuzzy feeling. You'd nudge it red. But if you want to capture the biting Jack Frost bitter cold, you would nudge towards the blue. And so you would cool the image. If you want an image that feels more edgy and awake and not, you know, relaxed and laid back, you'd nudge towards the blue. It's everything I just said about red, right? You know, relaxed and friendly and cuddly and all those kind of words, right? That's red. If you want the opposite of that, nudge blue. You get a cooler, more vibrant, more, not vibrant is quite the right word, more active, more uncomfortable perhaps. Um, certainly whatever the opposite of sleepy is. It's the opposite of gentle, harsher. They're also words you might use. So depending on what you're trying to capture, you're going to want to nudge one way or the other. I think just because human beings like things to be warm and fuzzy, generally speaking, most times you're editing, you're, you're, or, okay, most times I'm editing, I'm nudging towards the red. I don't nudge towards the blue at all often. I tend to leave it scientifically correct or nudged a little bit red. A little bit warm. I like my images a little bit warm sometimes. Okay, so that is really is all that I think we need to know about white balance. So if you want the colour of your images to be accurate, you need to get an accurate white balance. If you're shooting in JPEG, you need to get an accurate white balance before you press the shutter. If you're shooting in RAW, you can get your accurate white balance any time you like, but you really do need to be able to get to it. So the easiest way to make that stress-free is to use a grey card. And then when you have the scientifically correct colour, then artist you can step in and nudge one way or the other to get the appropriate value you want. So if you're shooting in JPEG, pay real attention to that white balance setting in your camera. Maybe your camera's really good at auto. So maybe you can leave it in auto 90% of the time. But I'd have a fairly good guess that if it snows, your camera's auto is going to guess wrong. So maybe if it snows, you need to step in and say neutral white balance. Another example of where I know for a fact the cameras get really confused when you leave them on auto is when you try to do astrophotography. Try shooting at night. Your camera basically has no light in order to make an educated guess. An educated guess based on no info is going to be a very bad guess. So if you want to take a moonlit photograph or a photograph of the stars, you tell your camera 
it's daylight. You put your camera into daylight settings, or if you're doing it in post-processing, tint, zero, colour temperature, 5,600 Kelvin. So there's a little bonus tip. So shooting by moonlight, or just a star field, neutral colour balance, which is no tint, 5,600 Kelvin. Okay, well, I'm going to draw a line under that. I'm hoping that that was helpful. Just a reminder that I am, as I record this, working on collecting together this whole series of jargon episodes, as I'm calling them. So episodes where I take a technical term and go deep, uh, so that we can search on them, so they become a resource. And however I manage to get that to work, I'm experimenting with lots of different things. WordPress isn't perfect. Um, But whatever solution I come up with, I already know its URL, and there is already a poor man's version sitting there right now today as I record this. It will be at letstashtalk.ie forward slash jargon, and you'll already find it in the site's uh, navigation section. It is down as LTP Jargon Buster Series in the uh, pages part of the sidebar. So do check that out. And while you're over there at letstashtalk.ie, you'll also notice large blue buttons with a heading support the show. Two things to say here. One, all of you who have clicked one of those big blue buttons, genuinely, thank you. Without you, the show would not exist. This is a listener-supported show, not an advertiser-supported show. So the fact that it exists is a testament to the quality of you guys, the audience. So thank you. Also, I know from many years of experience that you're not always in a position to help Uh, something you do for fun, financially. I have spent quite a lot of my life having to be extremely careful about what I do and don't give money to. So don't feel bad if you haven't support, you know, if you enjoyed the podcast and you haven't financially supported the show. I don't expect you to. I don't, you know, don't, don't put yourself to any hardship for goodness sake on my account. Instead, if you want to help the show, you can do so in other ways. The absolute simplest way is simply to tweet about it or Facebook, or whatever other social media you use. Just share the word. I listened to this episode. I learned a lot. I think it's great. Yeah, try not to say things like Bart's an idiot. (laughs) It won't really help the show. Um, Anyway, so just sharing the word. Tell a friend. Social media. That stuff really helps. You can take it another step further and leave an actual review on one of the podcatchers that exist here on planet Earth, your iTunes stores or whatever. That really helps the show. Uh, Again, I prefer the positive ones, let's be honest. Who doesn't? Um, But they all help, actually. And then, for those of you who can and wish to, you can help the show financially in five ways. So, the one that's perfect for being an ongoing patron of this podcast, to keep the lights on permanently, is to become a supporter on Patreon. So, the way Patreon works is you pledge a small dollar amount per episode released. It's for Let's Talk as a whole, so that means there will be exactly two shows every month, one photography, one Apple. So, if you'd like to contribute $5 a month, then pledge $2.50. If you'd like to contribute $2 a month, pledge $1. You get the idea. This is designed to allow small dollar amounts to be donated in such a way that PayPal fees don't make the gesture meaningless. If you donate $2, if you donate $1 via a direct PayPal, over half of it goes on PayPal fees and I get like a few cents. Whereas if you pledge through Patreon, it's one PayPal transaction to me at the end of the month. So the PayPal fees are tiny. 
And it's also one PayPal transaction for you for all of the podcasts you support. So your PayPal fees are tiny. So basically, Patreon makes it possible to use PayPal or credit cards to give small dollar amounts without the fees destroying the gift. If, on the other hand, you want to make a a one-off donation, then PayPal is absolutely your friend. And there's a PayPal button there. You simply type in a number that's, you know, really anything smaller than $3. If you do via PayPal, what you're doing is you're giving corporate welfare to PayPal and not really helping the show because of the way the fees work. But anything more than that, and you're actually genuinely helping out. Uh, And the way I organize things is the day-to-day costs are pretty much covered by the Patreon at the moment. They're, They're not exactly, but they're close. And everything else, new software, new hardware, that comes out of the PayPal donations. So my really nice boom arm that I'm now talking into, every time I look at it, I think, hey, the Let's Talk listeners help me buy this boom arm. It's a lovely boom arm and I really like it. So thank you guys. And then we have referral links to DigitalOcean and Hover. They are a cloud hosting provider and a domain registrar, both of which I actually genuinely use and actually genuinely like. If you use those referral links, you help the show. And finally, there's a merchandising store on Zazzle, which is probably going to disappear because it's completely not used. There are merchandise in it, but no one clicks on them, no one buys them, and I don't like the... I don't like the store either. I'm actually on the lookout, to be honest, I'm on the lookout for a replacement for Zazzle. If anyone can recommend a printy place that's better than Zazzle, can you let me know by going to Let's Just Talk and clicking on uh, the contact button and let me know, because actually I'd really like to replace that Zazzle store. Anyway, I think I've prattled on for long enough at this stage. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. Um, If you don't, please consider doing so in whatever way makes sense for you. Um, and I hope you enjoy the show and find it enlightening. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Amazon, Google, Apple, Android iOS, Alexa, Siri, technology, sci-fi, video games, tablets, computers, flash drives, toys, weather, and general silliness. Geekiest show ever, every week on the MyMac Podcasting Network.